0: everybody so today we have doug brignoli on the podcast how you doing doug i'm
1: good thanks how are you dave
0: doing well so as with all the podcasts we are starting with a charity donation doug and i spoke about it and we will be sticking with operation smile for this one so as always i will have a link down below for anybody who wants to help this is for surgeries for children born with cleft lip and palate so always appreciate it guys so, uh, Doug, I have to say it, it's interesting because I heard your name a few months back and one or two people posted in my comment section that I should have you on the podcast. Mm. And, and I hadn't heard of you up to that point. And, you know, I mean, the space is so big. You know, there's a lot of people we just never come across. And then somebody else commented and then somebody else commented. And I was like, OK, so either this guy is getting more and more popular or you're really good at having spam accounts that tell people <laughs> to bring you on. <laughs> So, uh, unfortunately,
1: I'm not that tech savvy.
0: Right, right. <laughs> so uh, the former. Right. Um, so I, you know, and I, I'll still say I don't know a ton about you, and I actually purposely kept it that way because I didn't want to be too biased, you know, by by seeing like your message. So I know you have a strong background in biomechanics, and and I know you have maybe some slightly controversial takes on an exercise selection. Um, but like I said, I, I kind of purposely kept my my knowledge of your background limited so that we kind of have like a fresh conversation to kind of see without too much bias there. Yeah, great, so perfect. Yeah. Uh, so why don't you tell everybody listening what your background is and how you're getting involved in the space?
1: Well, I started working out uh, when I was 14 um, and uh, I've always been analytical. and very curious and sort of mechanically oriented. I was the one fixing the doorknobs and the light switches and building the doghouse, and, you know, when I was a kid. So when I started weight training, I immediately, started um, wondering how this works, why this works, what's better than what, what determines better or worse, right? So um, as it turns out, there was no reference book. There was no um, owner's manual, so to speak. Uh, If you want to build an airplane, you go find, you know, principles of aviation. It'll tell you if a plane weighs this, it's got to be this wide, this long, the wingspan has to be this, the wing tilt has to be this. Well, this is a crane. Our body is a crane. It's a lifting machine, right? So um, the principles of physics, mechanical, classical mechanics applies to all things that are mechanical and that's the human body. So um, our forearms, our upper arms, our lower legs, our torso, all of that is is a a pendulum in essence, no different than a grandfather clock, no different than a swing hanging from the, the, you know, the park. Um, So all of those things apply. And it, it occurred to me along the way, because I started like everybody else starts. It occurred to me along the way that there was a lot of ways that traditional exercises are less efficient than they could be. Now, this is an important word, efficient, because people don't get that. I say something is inefficient, they go, Oh, you're saying it doesn't work. Oh no, no, that's not what it means. What it means is it requires more load to get a certain amount of resistance to the muscle, as opposed to an exercise that uses either a different lever length, limb length or a different lever angle, limb angle, right? So a muscle doesn't know how much you're actually lifting. It only knows how much resistance it's getting. It could be 90 pounds of resistance as 90% of 100 pounds, or it could be 30% of 300 pounds. Either way, the muscle's getting 90 pounds, it's gonna respond in terms of its size and strength increases based on what load it gets. The skeleton then has to deal with whether it's 300 pounds, or 100 pounds and 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 so it's very very unwise to load your skeleton unnecessarily or excessively load i should say your skeleton because someone will make the argument what about you know bone density it's like well yeah bone density happens anytime you weight bare mm-hmm. right but do you need to weight bare 500 pounds you need to weight bare 600 pounds if the load to the quadricep is actually less than it could be with a lesser weight
0: and, and to clarify for people listening when you're talking about efficiency it sounds like we're really talking about how efficiently we can work the muscle given the load, because you could also speak the other way and say, well, you know, like, in a, right. a powerlifting standpoint, you're actually trying to be more like you could say you're more efficient by using less muscle, right? And changing right. the range of motion to go from A to B. So, you know, Right. So let me let me just expound
1: on that. The same physics principles applies. You can use a lever to maximize a load to a muscle or minimize a load to a muscle if you want to lift a car, right, you minimize the load to the, if, you know, you have a crowbar, right? And you do this and you lift the weight of a car. So if your objective is to lift a lot of weight, you can do that. Like a lot of times you hear power lifters say, when you're bench pressing, get a narrow grip and, and, and come in close. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's what you're doing is you're shortening the length of the levers. You're shortening the moment arms, right? And you're making these limbs more vertical rather than horizontal. If you go like this, right? You're going to have a much harder time than if you, if you go like this, mm-hmm. right? In terms of loading the muscles that are participating in that motion.
0: Sure. Right. Now, from my, and you know, I think probably stick mainly with hypertrophy here, but just from a powerlifting standpoint, um, I guess you see it on both sides of the spectrum, especially if you're talking about you know people who would be equipped, right? Because I think a lot of like the really narrow Uh, benching came from those who are wearing bench shirts, right? Because so much of it was just just taken out of the bottom versus, you know, you see some women with great flexibility who will be extremely wide because they have such an arch. And and, and at the end of the day, we're still talking about the same thing, getting it from A to B with, you know, as minimal work as possible. But, uh, but yeah, you do see both sides of it where some people are extremely, extremely wide and other people are extremely narrow depending on other factors.
1: Here's the thing is, you know, I, I, some people mischaracterize what I say. I am not trying to advocate training light. Mm-hmm. In fact, I advocate training heavy. Heavy being defined as a resistance that limits the working muscle to about six reps. That's heavy lifting.
0: Yeah.
1: Four reps. If you can squeeze barely squeeze out four reps, that's heavy to the muscle working regardless of how much weight is actually being lifted. The problem is that people conflate these two and they think if you're using less weight, you're loading the muscle. It's not necessarily. Not to mention the fact that we have also um, sort of been dominated by a beast mode mentality, Mm -hmm. right? So what ends up happening is you go to the gym and you end up falling in, in line with a group of people who basically make it part of the ritual to see who can squat the most, who can deadlift the most, you know, who can bend the, mar, the bar, who can, mm-hmm. you know, get the biggest, you know, applause. Right. And so working out oftentimes becomes, without you even realizing, it's becoming an exhibition sport for you rather than a muscle-loading venture.
0: Well, if the bar ain't bending, you're just pretending, Doug. That's, that's how it goes. So. Well, yeah.
1: <laughs> and, and unfortunately, um, that ends up confusing people in terms of what their objective is is or what it could be or what it should be. And then they go down a path that maybe is not in the direction they want to go.
0: Did you have a period of your, because I believe you were quite young when you got started. Did mm-hmm. you have that ego period where you were lifting super heavy or were you kind of from day one looking to, you know, maximize approach with I,
1: from day one,
0: from really? day one. Yeah. I wow. was
1: never, well, first of all, I'm an ectomorph, right? So I, I was never naturally strong, mm. um, but I was also just nerdy analytical about everything, just nerdy. Um, and, and I would notice things, and that's, I guess, another advantage I've had is that I'm very connected to what I'm feeling. Like the first time I did parallel bar dips, I knew I was feeling it more in my front deltoids than anywhere else, mm-hmm. even before I knew what those were called, <laughs> right? Um, when I was doing, I remember being 15 years old and doing barbell wrist curls uh, with my forearms on my thighs on sitting on a bench right. and sensing that it was more resistance than I wanted it to be at the bottom, uncomfortably, you know, stretching my tendons there. And then when I would get to the top, the bar, basically the bar would get over the joint and run out of resistance. So I sensed immediately that if I prop up the back end of that bench and angle my forearms like this, I can r- reduce the resistance from the bottom and add it to the top well i manipulated the resistance curve without even knowing right. that thing had a name so right. i was always very you know uh, analytical of what i was feeling and what was better and what was worse and curious about what the what the rules would be what the principles would be that would designate something as being be- better than or worse than something else
0: how much do you factor in individual Uh, Anatomy there. Like, you know, if you have clients of your own, do you spend a lot of time saying, okay, for this individual, this is going to be a good exercise versus not? Or do you have general principles you you think apply to most people?
1: Well, here's the thing is let's just say you're going to compare a standing side raise or a lying down on your side side raise. Mm -hmm. Regardless of the length of your arm, regardless of your structure, One starts off with a horizontal arm and the other one starts off with a vertical arm. The vertical arm starts with zero resistance and ends with the most. The horizontal starting position starts with the most and ends with the least. That second one matches the strength curve of most muscles better, stronger in the beginning, weaker at the end. So it doesn't matter. Um, it, it, It would never happen that an exercise that's brilliant for one person is terrible for another and vice versa because it's not about. Those minor differences is just about you know the angle of the limb relative to the direction of resistance. Now, if you're going to let's say determine whether you have a career in, in in powerlifting, so whether you have the right structure, the right limb length for squats, yes, that would be something you'd want to consider. And I could certainly you know have that conversation. But the people that I deal with for the most part are fitness people and bodybuilders and people that are concerned about getting muscular development, right? Not people who are trying to lift the most amount of weight they can lift, right? So that means that no matter what your structure, your lower leg, when you squat is never going to get horizontal. It's going to be at about a 30 degree angle, give or take three, four, five degrees. And that is far from being a very efficient limb angle to optimally load the quadriceps.
0: I guess I asked for the individual in the sense that I, I would agree if you find like, I think the lateral is a good example where that's that principle that you said is going to apply regardless of somebody's limb length, right? Especially with right. a movement like that, where you're, you're actually keeping the limb relatively straight. Right. I think for something like a squat, we, we tend to see, like you could maybe say X exercise is better than a squat for almost everybody. But I would imagine that you still run into people's body types in terms of how effective maybe what you would call it bad exercise is obviously people have some people really don't seem to develop great legs if they just squat and other people do um which obviously you you yourself would recognize and i just wonder if maybe you would agree that some people are better built for squatting even if it's not the best maybe for them it's 70% of the best versus somebody else that's like of the best, if that makes sense. And I'm not saying the percentage is based on what you uh, spoke about with the percentage loading, but just how good it is relative to maybe the ideal exercise.
1: So the answer to that is yes, but it's it's a small difference. Hmm. Okay. Because regardless of your structure, you're never going to see a guy do a barbell squat whose lower leg tilts to a 45 degree angle. Obviously, the more it tilts, the more efficient it is at loading the quads for you right? If you're one of those people that, you know, for whatever reason ends up bending over farther and using your torso as a horizontal lever, while your lower leg is more almost close to vertical, then it's going to be less efficient at loading your Mm quadriceps. But that doesn't mean that I would then say, okay, well, because your lower leg goes to 40 degrees, then squat would be a good quad exercise for you. Mm -hmm. It still isn't a good quad exercise for you compared to, ah, compared to, That's the thing is you're going to get much more loading on your quadriceps if you have, let me just show you something that I made that really sort of shows you the way this thing works. So, you know what a moment arm is, right? Sure. Okay. So, I'm just wondering how many of your viewers know what a moment arm is. Okay, so the moment arm is the distance between the pivot and the weight or the end of the lever measured vertically. Why vertically? Because that's the direction of gravity in this case, okay? So here I've got one of these bolts in each basket. And so what we're gonna start off by saying is that this weight with a six inch lever at that angle equals that weight with a six inch lever at at that same angle. But if I take another one of these and I put it over here, Now, what we're saying is this moment arm is shorter than this one. So two weights at this angle equals one eight at that angle. Now, I'm going to add a third one. Three weights with an angle that is equivalent here to about the forward tilt of a squat is equal to one weight with a lever that's equivalent to what it would be your lower leg on a sissy squat. So you would need to get three times more weight on a sissy squat in order to get the same amount of quadricep load. So the point I want to make is when we're talking about loading, you can't assume that more weight automatically means more muscle load. Let me back up a tiny bit. Lombard's paradox started in 1903. A man named Lombard um, was trying, he was a physiologist. He was trying to figure out how a squat is even possible because what he was thinking was, well, the the hamstring is involved in extending the hip. Therefore, during a squat, the hamstring is activated. And if the hamstring is activated, it's also trying to bend the knee. But yet, when you're squatting, you're extending the knee. So why is it that the hamstring isn't fighting the quadricep and preventing any extension of the knees at all? And that's why I called it a paradox. Three years later, a guy named Sherrington came along and understood that the central nervous system sends a relaxation synapse to an antagonist muscle to allow the agonist muscle to do its job when the agonist has no other way of doing that job. In other words, the quadricep is the only muscle that extends the knee, but the hamstring is not the only muscle that extends the hip. In fact, it's not even the primary. The glute is the primary muscle assisted by the adductors and by the hamstring. And so the central nervous system shuts off the hamstring during that activity to allow the quadricep to work. And the same thing happens to the rectus femoris which is one of the four quadricep muscles. Why? Because it is the only one that has a secondary function. It also flexes the hip as well as extending the knee. So the central nervous system shuts off the rectus femoris because it's sensing the extension of the hip requiring the cancellation of hip flexion muscles. That means here you are using three times more weight on a squat than you would need to use in order to get the same load another exercise would give you, but you're now also getting your rectus femoris being shut off.
0: Which I suppose could be why we've seen some of these recent studies that when they you know, look at equal volume in terms of sets between, let's say, a squat and a leg extension, they'll see more maybe vastus lateralis growth in the squat, right. but they see more rectus femoris in the leg extension.
1: Right. So when someone says to me, is squat a good exercise? You know, I have to be very careful how I say this because people take it out of context. Is it a good exercise for the quadriceps? The answer is not compared to a leg extension or a sissy squat, which allows you to load the muscle more with less resistance, no spinal loading, and no cancellation of the rectus femoris. If your objective is to get one exercise that does a little quad, a little glute, a little adductor, a little erector spinae, then the spotted squat is a good exercise. But if your objective is to get the best development for all those muscles I just mentioned, you get better glute exercise with that exercise. You get better rectospine exercise with that exercise. You get better hamstring exercise with that one over there. So why do an exercise that's going to give you a compromised benefit on all those if you have to supplement that with exercise that you could just use as standalones?
0: And I just want to comment a little bit, going back a bit on the uh, the efficiency aspect, because I think there's two different, arg- or not arguments, but two different points where if we're just talking about the efficiency and being able to use less load for an equal stimulus i think that is relevant but perhaps i don't want to say less important but for example i could do a lateral with my arm straight out i could also double the load and bend my arm and, and also do that. Now, the former, you could argue, be more efficient in that I'm creating the same stimulus on the muscle with a lower load. However, given that there's really not a ton of stress from if I'm using a 40-pound dumbbell with a bent arm versus a 20-pound dumbbell with an extended arm, I would argue that you're getting a similar stimulus on the muscle. It probably doesn't matter that much unless I'm missing something. Um, you know You're going to create that same load, and one is just, I guess, arguably more efficient versus with the squat, you're actually talking about, okay, maybe somebody can get, because you can really get a lot of um, knee flexion and and knee extension from like a deep, deep squat, right? Uh, So you could still get a very full range of motion from a squat, but it sounds like you're arguing that even if you did that, one, you'd have to use significantly more load, but two, you're also arguing that it actually, even with the same stress on, I guess, overall muscles, there are some muscles that actually just won't ever be as activated. Is that a good? Synopsis? Well, the first
1: thing I want to say is I never said anything about range of motion. I've never said you get a compromised range of motion with a squat. Mm-hmm. You get plenty of knee flexion. You're right about that, but that is, that isn't the issue because we're talking apples and apples. You're talking full range of motion on a squat, full range of motion, on a leg extension, full range of motion on a squat. You know, then you're talking about percentage of load that is actually getting onto the muscle. Um, the other thing Uh, goes both ways. And what I mean by that is this. If you do a side raise with a bent arm, what you're actually doing is you're taking your forearm, which is the secondary lever to the primary lever, the primary lever being defined as the muscle that is actually connected to the muscle doing the work, right? The secondary lever can do a couple of things. It can either lengthen the primary lever, or it can shorten the primary lever, or it could rotate the primary lever, which is what happens when you do a side raise with let's say a 30 or a 40 pound dumbbell as you're raising this thing up, but it's wanting to rotate down, which is causing you to activate your infraspinatus muscle, which is your primary external rotator to keep that from happening. So if you said, okay, I'm going to load my deltoid with X amount of load twice as much if I'm doing straight arm, excuse me, half as much if I'm using a straight arm, twice as much if I'm using a bent arm, The load to the deltoid is the same, but now you've added a load to the infraspinatus being the weak link in the chain. You you could actually hurt your infraspinatus even though you didn't even know you were doing that and even though you weren't getting any additional benefit to your side deltoid. So I would say that is not a good way to go. But if you did a side raise machine where the roller was higher on your arm and you didn't have that rotation of the arm, that would be great. That would be perfectly okay. In other words, it's okay to use a shorter lever and use and compensate for that shorter lever with a heavier weight. And actually, it makes it less unwieldy to shorten the lever a little bit, right? But you don't want an added rotational force happening that you weren't planning on. Let's just say you want to work the front deltoid, right? And you're lying on your back and you're doing a front press with your elbows in close. Should you do it with a straight arm? No, because then you'll strain your bicep tendon. Right With a weight that satisfies, that loads that front deltoid enough, with a straight arm, when the, the arm is horizontal, you'll strain your bicep tendon. You won't be able to use as much weight as that front deltoid needs without risking injury and be, without being limited, really, by that straight elbow.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, like everything you're saying, it would it, be hard to argue the biomechanics of what you're saying, right? I mean, it, it makes sense. Um, I think, and if I sound like I'm argumentative, it's more just like to learn, you know. No, the you have to here. be, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's the um, no point. Yeah. And, and so, you know, if I'm coming from a background of maybe somebody says, okay, this has face validity, but how do we know this is not just a specious argument when you, you look at how so many bodybuilders have gotten, and, and I know you said before, like, you're not saying that these, these ways can't work. So uh, I'm straw manning a little bit, but just in the sense that you have so many people who do it really like not necessarily what you're talking about. And then obviously you've developed a great physique yourself, but um, what do you tell people who say, like I've been doing this for so long and look at how many, look how much evidence we have for this versus what you're saying.
1: Okay. Look, um, you know, Dave Palumbo recently said something like, look, all I know is when I squatted 600 pounds, I had 33 inch quads. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Fair enough. I never six, 600 pounds would not develop 33 inch quads. What I'm saying is there's a road you can take and that road could be a really bumpy, dirty, muddy, rocky road, or you could take a smoother road. That'll get you there also. Mm -hmm. And that, and that's the thing. So, you know, there's a lot of people I'm sure, you know, that are emotionally attached to conventional weight training. So they will argue, well, nobody's ever built a Mr. America body or a Mr. Olympia body doing your exercises. Yeah, that's right. Not yet, because it's, this is just now coming to light. This is just now being exposed, right? This wasn't, this should have been exposed. Like, you know, weight training has been around for 100 years. Why didn't anybody tell us the role that physics plays in this, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this is, this, is all, this is factual stuff. In other words, you know, my book is endorsed by 10 PhDs, one of which is a guy from NASA who's uh, a physics PhD, right? And, and these numbers all add up. So the question is this, which of these two would make your quadricep grow better? 1,200 pounds of resistance or 950 pounds? 950 pounds of resistance. 1,200 pounds of resistance, right? 1,200 pounds of resistance is what you get on your quads if you weigh 200 pounds and you do a 60 squat and let your lower leg get horizontal. 950 pounds is the load you get on your quadricep if you weigh 200 pounds and have a 200 pound barbell on your back and do a traditional lower leg tilt of about 30 degrees. So one clearly loads the muscle more, but you look like a sissy doing it, <laughs> right? Never mind the name. But, but we've got to look at this more intellectually. I'm not saying let's, let's not lift heavy weight or not let's challenge a muscle. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying mm-hmm. is let's figure out a way to get more load on that muscle without crushing you know, your skeleton in the process.
0: And do you think there's anything, I think, you know, you you have a very strong point from the physics and biomechanics aspect of it. Do you think that there's anything we haven't discussed yet or that we're missing where it's like, look, like, you know, if we have this model, this force is applied and, and, you know, based on this moment arm, that makes sense. But could we be missing anything that has to do with, you know, how the body tends to actually move? Like, you know, for instance, nobody's actually doing sissy squats in real life, right? Even if you could manipulate your body to do that could we be missing something of what is, I hate to say like a, like a natural argument, but like, okay, you're na- you, the body is meant to squat, let's say, for instance. Like, do you think we're missing anything there of, of what we're really like meant to be doing?
1: Well, I'll tell you some of the arguments and that's a good one. So number one is a quadricep has a job to do and that job is to extend the knee. And the glutes have a job to do and that job is to extend the hip. If those muscles are worked separately, And you make those muscles stronger. When you do have to sit in a chair or climb a ladder or do a squatting type of movement, those muscles will do what they are strong enough to do in perfect coordination. Now, if you're an athlete and let's say you're a basketball player and you have to do jump squats basically, because that's what you're doing when you're rebounding and things like that, I would say definitely do squats as part of your sports training because it simulates what you're doing on the court. But there's a lot of people that don't like squats, mm-hmm. right? And I would say you don't have to do squats. Should you do squats? You shouldn't. I wouldn't say you should. Can you do squats? Is it bad that you do squats? No, it's not bad for you to do squats, especially if you're using just body weight or relatively lightweight. The problem is that when we want maximum muscle gain and the only way for you to do that is to load your spine more and more and more, then you have to start factoring in the cost. And the cost of putting 500, 600, 700 pounds on your back shouldn't be ignored, right? You should say to yourself, okay, you were talking function. This guy was squatting 700 pounds. He's not talking about functional adaptation for what in the world could he possibly do Mm -hmm. that that will require that, right? So if his objective is to chase muscle growth, he shouldn't be thinking about ways of compensating for the inefficiency of the lower leg levers. By adding more weight, he should be thinking of fixing the efficiency of the lower leg levers to increase muscle load. That would be the wiser approach. Now, here's another thing that people say is, well, what about, you know, when you squat, you know, 400, 500 pounds, you get a testosterone increase and you get a growth hormone increase. Mm -hmm. Well, what actually is, is and there's a study, I don't know if you you saw this recently, uh, Brad Schoenfeld just reported this. Um, What happens is, yes, you get an increase of testosterone, when you have an energy crisis, when squats or another compound exercise is done with enough weight and enough reps that it becomes massively taxing on your central nervous system. And then you produce t- testosterone and growth hormone. Why? To compensate for the cortisol that you've just created. So they've just done this study now that have found that these people did not actually get any additional muscle growth from this increase because now they're realizing there was something else that was a catabolic happening at the same time.
0: Yeah, I think at least as long as I've been in this, it's maybe not as long, but for a while now, I think it's been more or less shown that these acute transient changes in testosterone and growth hormone, you know, don't do a ton for us. And, And I believe actually, if they look at the correlation between growth, it's actually stronger with the cortisol response, which obviously, you know, isn't, I wouldn't say it's a cause of it, but the correlation is there um, even more than it is with growth hormone and testosterone. So that, that argument, I think, is, is um, taken down. It, it neutralizes, easily. yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, do you find people with sissy squats get patellar issues? Because that is, is one I've heard with that exercise in particular.
1: Well, okay, that's a good question. Um, the first thing that we would have to say is what happens during a sissy squat, right? Well, what happens, obviously, is that you are applying a progressively more perpendicular resistance to the lower leg. Right? So the question is is a perpendicular resistance to the lower leg a bad thing? Well, the first thing I would say is a perpendicular resistance is what we rely on for everything. When you're doing tricep skull crushers, you're relying on a perpendicular resistance on your forearm. When you're doing curls, you're relying on a perpendicular resistance against your forearm pulling the other direction. When you're doing side raises, I mean perpendicular resistance to the lever that's being worked by your target muscle is essential right? So the idea of this whole thing about keeping your knees back behind your toes when you're squatting is an indirect way of saying, don't let your lower leg get perpendicular. Keep it vertical, keep it neutral. Well, the more non-perpendicular it is to resistance, the more closer to to parallel with resistance it is, the less load you get on that muscle. So could you spare your knees by not loading your quadriceps? Yeah. (laughs) In other words, if you have bad elbows, you're going to have a hard time loading heavily your triceps. If you have bad knees, you're going to have a hard time loading your quadriceps without bringing into play the hand. so there's nothing inherently wrong mechanically with a sissy squad other than the fact that it gives you a much greater percentage of load on the quadricep by way of the patella tendon.
0: Gotcha. So, so you, your patella you Knee pain is is essential. You feel the knee pain is basically just because you're getting greater quad stimulus.
1: That combined with the fact that you don't have good knees to begin with.
0: Right. Okay. Okay.
1: In other words, a perfectly healthy knee won't have that trouble. Hmm. Right? And and a knee that that is the knee, look, the degree of involvement of the knee is directly related to the degree of involvement of the quadricep. The more quadricep load, the more knee involvement. Right. So you can you can you can get the same amount of knee involvement with a squat that you can with a sissy squat if you use enough weight.
0: Do you find, like, let's say you have a client who it's like, okay. These are some of the ideal exercises, and they're having joint pain from that. Do you kind of just accept? All right, we're going to have to pick a less than ideal exercise. I mean, I, I assume you're not just telling people to just constantly work through a lot right. of pain, right? Exactly. So, <laughs> do you just say we're just going to pick? what in your mind would be a suboptimal exercise so that they can at least still lift? What I
1: would say, if you said to me, I'm having knee pain when I do sissy squats, I would say, okay, well then let's do the squat because the squat's going to load your quadricep less and therefore your knee less. Mm. And if it's comfortable, that's fine. Right now, I don't have to emphasize the fact that you're getting less quadricep benefit, even though you are, Mm. right? You're getting enough, as much as your knee can handle. I can also tell you, okay, well, let's do sissy squats, but let's not use full range of motion. Let's use half range of motion. So you, And by the way, the best kind of sissy squat is the kind you do with the pulley. Have you seen those?:
0: um, so you, gra- you grab no. a
1: cable that is a low cable, and you can either grab two separate cables or one that's right down the center. And what you're actually doing is you're adding, you're combining your downward pull of gravity, of your body weight, with a forward pull of the cable. So you end up getting a composite direction of resistance that's <laughs> somewhere between this, and this. And what matters now is that that cable is pulling more vertically, excuse me, more perpendicularly to your lower leg than straight gravity would be. Plus, using the cable also helps you keep your balance. So, you don't actually have to hold uprights or anything else. So, if you do this, and I just did these last night, you hold these cables, you lean back, you let your knees go forward, and you you lower that range of motion on your knee until you feel some discomfort. And then you say, okay, well, I can handle that. No lower than that. And my quads are on fire. So let's mm-hmm. use that method. Same with leg extension, just use a weight you can handle or use a range of motion you can handle.
0: Do you have, I mean, obviously like we can't go through like every exercise, but do you have uh, m- maybe one exercise for body part or something that you like and are some of these more traditional or would you say most of them are significant variations on the you know the stereotypical exercises people are familiar with
1: well look you know i mean i, I my objective here was not to reinvent the wheel my inv- i wasn't i didn't set out to like say every exercise that i'm going to teach you is a new exercise you've never done before right dumbbell shrugs is great dumbbell curls alternating dumbbell curls is great um, skull crushers lying on a flat bench or on a decline bench, great, right? But I don't believe in overhead presses mm. because I think that that has, look, here's my side deltoid right here, right? There's my divider. So if I do a side raise, my side deltoid is on the opposite side of the downward resistance, which means it's opposite position loaded. It's in the line of force. If I bend my arm to do an overhead press, watch what happens to the side deltoid. It rotates all the way to the rear, which means now it's not in line with the downward force of gravity, which means it's not going to be loaded nearly as much. And what comes up on top is mostly the front deltoid. Mm -hmm. And you might say, okay, well, I want to work front deltoid. And I would say, yes, that's fine. And so do I, right? But you can get front deltoid development without impingement syndrome, without Mm -hmm. pushing your humerus up underneath your acromion process and squeezing the supraspinatus tendon and the subacromial bursa in between, Not to mention the fact that most people don't have enough mobility in their shoulder to rotate their arm enough to make that forearm go vertical so there's a slight forward tilt, which means they're doing overhead presses like this, which means this thing is trying to fall forward, which means you have to rotate it backward to keep it from falling, which means now you're straining your infraspinatus on top of the impingement syndrome and on top of the misalignment of the muscles with the direction of the force. So. Just because you can lift a heavier weight overhead does not mean the muscles are getting a better experience, a better stimulus.
0: What do you like to do for front delts? Do you just kind of let the pressing as far as like chest pressing take care of it? Or do you actually do front raises?
1: Well, the, the rule is, and by the way, there's 16 factors or 16 rules that actually determine the value of an exercise. One of those 16s is, is the insertion of your target muscle moving toward the origin of your target muscle? Okay. So the insertion of the front deltoid is here. The origin is on the upper part of the clavicle. So you need to move it toward the clavicle Mm -hmm. from a lower position. If you're doing this, you're doing it, but not as much as this. Here is the lengthening and the shortening of the front deltoid. Lengthening, shortening. length. So when you're doing a front raise with a barbell, you're not lengthening your front deltoid. You're not stretching the front deltoid. You're not taking it into its fully elongated position, but you would if you were lying on a flat bench. You Keep your elbows in close, bring the dumbbells down to around your navel area. Now you're getting a stretch and you're getting early phase loading. You know what early phase loading is, right? For those that don't know, muscles are stronger when they're elongated in the early phase and they're weaker when they shorten. So you want to choose an exercise. Another one of the 16 factors is early phase loading, choosing an exercise that loads the early part of the range of motion and minimizes the resistance towards the latter part of the range of motion. So a flat bench dumbbell press like this would be a fantastic exercise for the front deltoid. Okay. You can do that with cables too.
0: Right, right. Now, do you, I, I, do you have a YouTube channel yourself
1: Uh, smart training 365, which uh, I do with my associate Mo Larby has a uh, YouTube channel. I started doing some YouTube shows with, um, uh, a a friend of mine, um, uh, Bill Comstock a while back, uh, Brignoli muscle mechanics, but (laughs) they were so labor intensive. I mean, I had to come up. And so there's, there are some Doug Brignoli YouTube shows, but I'm not making any more of them. I'm just letting Mo take over now.
0: Okay. I was just curious if there was perhaps an area where people can see a demonstration of these exercises that you recommend, but you also have well, a book, right?
1: I have the book. And then you can also go to, um, I would say go to smart train 365 YouTube channel. Cause we do demonstrate, we do weekly shows okay. and people ask us, you know, what about this? What about that? And so we comment, this is good. This is not so good. And, and again, it's not, we're not trying to say everything that we're not teaching is bad, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes most surprises me. He said, what about, and I go, you know, that's actually not a bad thing. Yeah. And here's why it's not a bad thing.
0: It sounds like, you know, maybe with some exceptions, when it comes to traditional um, single joint isolated exercises, you're more on board with them. Like I imagine you, you don't have too much of a problem with a standard calf raise because there's only right. so much <laughs> you can do there, right? Um, I, was, I was hoping you are going to give me some hope for my calves, man. You were going to tell me some magical thing I haven't heard in 18 years. Well, but... <laughs> I will say
1: this about calves, and that is that um, there is a thing that's called um, active insufficiency. And active insufficiency means that active pertains to the muscle that's working and, and passive would be the muscle that's on the opposite side, not working, right? So there is such a thing as passive insufficiency. So let's just say you want to work the hamstring. We'll talk about the hamstring. We'll see how it applies to calves. If you do a lying on your stomach, like curl like curl machine, you will experience active insufficiency of the hamstring. And that means that because the hamstring is crosses two joints, that you need to have sufficient length of a muscle in order to avoid active insufficiency, which is a weakening of that muscle. So what happens is this, see if I can show it to you here. If if you're lying on a flat bench um, and your femur is pretty much parallel with your torso as the old fashioned leg curls used to be, Mm -hmm. what you've actually done is you've taken the insertion of the hamstring and you moved it closer to the origin of the hamstring. So that starts off with a pre-shortened position, and then you bend your knee and, and continue shortening it. So literally, I tell people all the time, if you want to test this, all you got to do is stand on one leg, hold onto the back of a chair or something, take the other leg that you're not standing on, move it back a little bit behind the other leg, now bend your bend your knee, and you will feel your, your hamstring cramp up. It's overshortening. The myosin, uh, the, the, the active filaments are sliding over each other and clumping up and they've run out of contractile room. Okay, now, at the same time, the quadricep is stretching because of the angle of your hip simultaneous to you fully bending the knee. Now you're bringing passive insufficiency. The hamstring is now telling your central nervous system, let me rephrase that, the quadricep is now telling the central nervous system, I might be overstretched, tone down the innervation of the hamstring. So your hamstring is being shut off in part because it's getting colliding filaments and also because the central nervous system is trying to protect the overstretching of the quadricep. That's why they started making, because that's why, by the way, everyone who was doing those leg curls would raise their tailbone up. They would arch up, right? Mm-hmm. Because the hamstring was seeking a, a, a bend in the hip. It knows it needs to be bent, right? So then people started manufacturing those leg curl machines with a hump in it, but it's still not enough. A seated leg curl is the better way to to work the hamstring because you start off with a more elongated hamstring and it it lets you avoid both passive insufficiency of the quadricep and active insufficiency of the hamstring. And the same thing happens with calves when you're doing seated calf raises. When you're doing seated calf raises and your knee is bent, the insertion and the origin are closer together. Now you raise up on your toes and you feel your calves cramping up. You're not going to be strong on a seated calf raise you're not going to get size with a seated calf raise because you can't use enough weight and you're, you're also not protecting your tendon with enough muscle stretch. So you should always do calves with a semi, almost fully straight knee, whether that's in the form of a standing calf raise or a leg press calf raise or a one-legged calf raise. It should be mostly straight knee in order to get maximum, optimum length on the, on the calf before you start loading it.
0: You should tell all the college guys at my gym that they can't lift heavy on the uh, seated calories because they'll load on four plates and just kind of bounce it up and down a lot. Well, they
1: do a partial range of motion. We see a lot of that. (laughs) For sure.
0: Yeah. Um, So you mentioned, you know, and I think it makes sense. And I I think there was actually a recent study showing superior hamstring growth with a seated leg curl versus uh, like a prone leg curl. and. I don't know why i I probably haven't had enough exposure with the seated because almost every gym i see has like the lying down like uh leg curl but the lying leg curl just felt more natural to me um and again maybe i just haven't done seated enough but i certainly understand what you're saying and having like a full range of motion having to start in the stretch position i would think a similar argument could be made for the uh the long head of the tricep if you're talking about like an overhead extension which I believe, based on some of your other comments, you're not a big fan of the overhead uh, extension for the long head. Is that right?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, uh, the the idea that the overhead tricep extension works the tricep better because it stretches the tricep that head better um, suggests that stretch, maximum stretch, is critically important for muscle growth. But if that were true, then we would try to do that with all muscles. And we don't try to do that with all muscles, right? In other words, if you got on an incline bench and tried to start your curl from a maximally stretched position, you would find that that's just uncomfortable. Doesn't necessarily give you remarkable bicep growth, right? If you bottom out on a dumbbell press, you don't get remarkable pec growth. In fact, you could jeopardize your shoulders by doing that. So same thing with abs. You don't want to overarch when you're doing your ab exercises. So we can go right on down the line and see that excessive stretch is not a primary factor in muscle growth, not to mention the fact that a lot of people do an overhead tricep, and they don't even let themselves bottom out. Mm -hmm. They go like this. right? So they're not actually even stretching. So what I always say is, look, as long as that forearm gets relatively perpendicular with gravity, you're going to get efficiency, efficient loading of that tricep. The question we should be asking is, are you going to get something better, something different, from an overhead tricep extension than you would from a more comfortable version lying flat or arms down at your side and the answer is no uh, you know i stopped doing overhead tricep extensions probably 15 years ago and the long head of my tricep is still <laughs> it's still is still just as good as it was yeah. before i was before when i was doing the overhead so it's it's it, it is a mistake to assume that you're going to get better long head tricep growth just because you're doing the overhead part, you will discover that you get just as good long head growth from doing it more comfortably, either on a flat bench or a decline bench or with cables.
0: Yeah, I can't really comment on the size aspect just because I've done both usually concurrently. Um, I actually feel the only time I've had elbow pain from uh, tricep exercise is when I do line skull crushers. If I load those up, I do get elbow pain. If I do overhead, um, like right now, I do a dumbbell overhead. So I, I don't, I don't like the the two hand going back. I just find that I don't know awkward on my shoulders. But if I do a single and I and I have a better, I guess a slightly better range of motion, but also I I can or maybe just different a,
1: shoulder position. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's a little more comfortable. And I I find consistently that when I do that. Not that I think soreness is an indicator of growth, but I would say it is somewhat an indicator of what's being worked. And, and I consistently find that it gets, makes my long head very sore. Um, so I don't know if you have any comments on that, but also I just, I'm maybe a little confused on the hamstring thing. Cause I thought a big part of why you said the seated was better was because it did get that stretch. And, but okay, then you
1: no. so, and there are some people that surmise that the reason why the seated leg curl is better is because of the stretch phase loading. Right. But it isn't because, in fact, you could even set the range limiter on that thing so that you don't even straighten your knees. It's because you don't overshorten the hamstring because you have a, a, a longer starting length because of the hip angle. That's all it is. It's not because you're getting more stretch on the hamstring. In fact, you can eliminate the stretch and it's still a better exercise because w- the, the critical part is when the knee is fully bent, you're not combining that fully bent knee with an extended hip. That combination is what overshortens the hamstring. So that's the a different thing.
0: Overshortening is actually a detriment to growth, not even neutral it sounds like.
1: Well, it's it it weakens it. Dr. Kramer, William Kramer, has written extensively about this. He's a very well-known exercise physiologist about it, and and it's it's common knowledge. I mean, everyone knows that a muscle has a strength curve. Sure. Right? So if you research what a strength curve is, it says the muscle is stronger here and weaker there why is it weaker because of the shortening of the actin film it's a colliding of the actin filaments versus the elongating part of it has more of a recoil effect
0: right. so
1: that's that's pretty standard the the other aspect is this is that anything that you do that is novel so if you go out and play some tennis right now and you're not used to playing tennis you're going to get sore doesn't mean you're going to grow from it Sure. If I squeeze my hands together and I symmetrically contract my chest and I hold this contraction for 10 minutes, I'm going to have a sore pecs tomorrow, but that's not the way to grow your pecs either. All right. So soreness does not correlate to growth, but I will say this, that when you activate the triceps, when you activate elbow extension, what happens is that the three heads of the tricep converge on one single tendon and that tendon crosses the elbow joint. And ties in right here to the ulna. And so the idea that you can work an outer head or an inner head has to be justified or understood. How do you do that when it's one tendon that's pulling on this? I mean, yes, you can stretch more, and yes, you can get soreness from stretching. But the action of elbow extension is happening by way of that tendon, which is connected to all three heads. So it's impossible to say that one of the heads is working harder that it's contracting more because you would have to then say, well, if it's contracting more, is that mean it's leaving the other two behind? Wh- why would one of the three heads pull harder than the other two heads are pulling? Yes. You can stretch more. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. And is the stretching related to the, Is the soreness related to the stretching? Probably, but it would be hard to understand mechanically how it is that one head can pull more. Than the other, unless you're talking about a different outcome. Just same thing with the quads. If, the one, if one head is pulling more than the other head, it could only be explained because somehow that lower leg is now going toward the head that's pulling harder. Right? But they're not, you're not moving the, the, the knee and the elbow are hinge joints. They only move in one direction. That means you can't favor one muscle over another muscle because you can't change the direction of movement of that joint and of that limb.
0: So, you know, let's say like even five, 10 years ago, it was almost mocked if somebody were to say, well, you know, I'm going to work the inner chest, right, you know, and I'm going to, like you know, shape the muscle, right? And I think that was more or less established. In the last year or two, I've seen maybe two studies now showing where they had squats and, and they had uh, partials versus full range of motion and, and variations like that. And it seemed like they actually found differential growth in the distal or proximal. I've seen those. Do you have thoughts on that? I've seen
1: those. Look, um, let me just say, first of all, that we, we should not take everything as gospel. In other words, the first thing I would do is question the results. And the reason I would question the results is because muscle fibers are like ropes. The reason skeletal movement happens is because this rope is pulling its or its insertion towards its origin, right? So if you saw two guys doing a tug-of-war, that rope is going to have even tension throughout. doesn't matter if this guy starts to win and the rope starts to move that way, or that guy starts to win and the rope starts to move that way. There's just no way mechanically that that tension cannot be, won't be even throughout the rope. So the same thing, in order for a knee to extend, in order for a tricep to extend, in order for the upper arm to move toward the origin... There has to be a rope-like thing happening. And the idea that part of that rope would somehow work more than another part of that rope sort of defies logic. Um, and so I would, not, I would not bank on it. I would say mm. <laughs> I think that outcome should be questioned.
0: Yeah. Well, it certainly if it doesn't replicates.
1: Yeah. It just doesn't make functional sense again you know you can take an emg study you can take whatever you want but at the end of the day you still have to be able to explain it mechanically oh that happens because when this happens the joint moves that way or when that happens it moves that way or there has to be a mechanical explanation so that we can then use that to predict what something will do in other cases you can't just look at an emg study and say oh well you never know what you're going to get. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I know there's definitely a, a lot of questions when it comes to EMG studies, um, you know, and, and some of the findings I, I that I mean, I'm talking even 10 years ago that I was so I, I know Brett Contreras did a lot of work with EMG data and and some of that I do question um, those two or so uh, new studies were interesting, but again, we have to see if it replicates. Um, well, you know,
1: you can get a good EMG study in a tricep kickback, mm-hmm, right? And a tricep kickback is end phase loaded. And when your elbow bends and it's your form is hanging vertically, your tricep has nothing zero resistance. And if you pull it with your bicep, you trigger reciprocal innervation, which shuts off your tricep in the middle of a tricep exercise. So you're not going to get much growth with a tricep kickback, even if you get soreness. Right. Right. But EMG studies only measure activation. They don't measure early phase loading. They don't measure, you know, uh, uh, range of motion or anything.
0: Yeah. And to be clear on the, the soreness comment I had, I mean, that's I we're on the same page there. And so I don't tend to use soreness much as an indicator, but generally speaking, I, I think like, you know, even with your example, well, there's a reason that you said your chest would get sore and, and not your back. You know, like I mean, I, for the most part, it's okay. Obviously my triceps are involved, but I don't think that necessarily means like this is my, you know, the best mass builder for my triceps. You know, I would maybe put that towards some of the other exercises I've had progressive overload over the years um which i guess kind of delves into you know one other topic i wanted to get into uh, get into with you is that you mentioned you still do some heavy work right you know four six reps maybe mm-hmm. um there's some research in the last few years that if you're going to failure and you know you always got a question you know how advanced the trainees are and you know how well the study was done but as long as you're going to failure in theory 30 plus reps or you know even 30 40 percent of one rep max if you're if you're doing um blood flow restriction training can still optimize growth. And, and I, some people very much question that. Do you have thoughts on much higher rep ranges?
1: Yes. Um, let me start off by saying that we, some of these subjects we've talked about are mechanical. Mm-hmm. Some of them are mis- muscle physiological, right? And they're different subjects. Um, and my my expertise is mostly on the mechanical aspect of exercise, okay. but I do read the work of Brad Schoenfeld and Chris Beardsley and the other people that do research with EMG studies and all that. So I, I I have read their reports and and their reports have um have said very clearly what you just said, which is if you take this guy over here and you give him a, a light weight and tell him to do thirty reps to failure, and you take this guy and you give him a heavy weight of six reps, and he goes to failure, and then you measure their growth. Of that one set you will find about equal growth okay that's fine what if i don't want only that growth i want more mm-hmm. okay so now this guy has to do a second set to failure and this guy has to do a second set to failure well what we end up finding out is that muscle muscle growth apparently seems to rely mostly on fiber recruitment and so fiber recruitment can happen two ways it can happen either with total 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 fatigue to failure Or it can happen with a high weight, 80% or more of your one rep max from the very first rep. So the muscle basically says, I'm going to recruit a lot of fibers when I need help. When do I need help? When I'm really, really tired or when the weight is really, really heavy. Okay. So what happens now is, and there's some great work by Chris Beardsley in this regard, they would say avoid failure. you're you're better off taking a set to 95% max, stopping and then doing another set and another set and another set. In other words, if you do four, five, six sets of six reps, you're going to get more what they call qualified reps, reps that induce growth than you could possibly get by trying to do that with the high rep failure mechanism. And when you do the high rep, high fatigue Failure uh, to failure mechanism. You create more lactic acid, you create more systemic fatigue, you create more lactic. Uh, excuse me, more more cortisol. So it'll take you longer to recover from that, and you can't do as much volume just by default. So you're going to get more volume. You're going to get more more ultimately more muscle growth from doing more sets of low reps. But I don't recommend that people start with low reps. I always say let your first set be 30 reps. 30 reps with a weight that barely challenges you for maybe 70% effort. Just get things going. Get
0: the blood That's similar, It's That's more like a warm-up.
1: 20 reps with 80% effort. 15 reps with 85% effort. And keep increasing the effort as you increase the weight. But don't ever go to a, maybe on the very last set, you can go to 100%. Mm. Because you don't, you're, you're not saving yourself for any subsequent sets. But you're going to get more growth with more volume. It's going to take more time. But ultimately, you're going to get more growth with, lower weight, higher rep, and more of them.
0: So when you're talking about volume there, you're not just talking about hard sets. You, you think even with, like you mentioned, lower weight, higher reps. So you actually are a fan of that, but maybe just not going towards failure. You use it as more of like an acclimation of the weight.
1: Well, when I say volume, I'm talking about qualified reps. Okay. So that set of 30 reps, you don't get 30 reps of volume. Sure. You get about 10 reps of volume. When you Mm -hmm. start to fail, when you start to, that's when the counting starts. Right. So you do your set of 30 and you start to really poop out at 31. Maybe you've got nine good reps of volume versus six times six, 36 reps of volume. So volume is really, you know, when they talk about time under tension, which is kind of another way of, of, of saying volume, it only refers to the reps that count, not the reps that don't.
0: Yeah, the volume debate has been very interesting for the last few years because, and I don't know how closely you followed along, but people talk about volume load, which has a lot of issues because you know, are you if you're using a lighter weight, as you mentioned, like so many, you can get crazy high volume load, you know, if you're talking sets times reps times weight with right. almost no effort, right? And then it yeah. was well people talked about hard sets. And then, as you said, there's, I mean, I've heard it called effective reps, but qualified reps, you know, the same, same thing. thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so, which I think does make sense, which is where you can get into some like the rest pause training, like, Hey, if we can, you know, do a hard set, only rest 30 seconds. Now my next set is all qualified or effective reps, you know, and, and um, in my experimentation with uh, rest pause, I've certainly not noticed any worse results with it, you know, and and it's certainly time efficient. Um, It looks like you might have some comments on it. I'm not sure.
1: (laughs) You're reading my smirk. Um, Rest pause can be interpreted a couple ways. Mm -hmm. A 30 second rest, I would not call rest pause.
0: It's called another set.
1: It's called, it's called high fatigue training. Mm -hmm. It's no different than a breakdown set. It's no different than a superset of two exercises with, for the same muscle. It's no different than forced reps. I mean, fatigue training can be both good and bad. It can be bad because it could interfere with volume. I remember when I was a kid, I used to work at a Bill Pearl's gym. I was 15, 16 years old. I don't know if any, any of your uh, viewers remember Dave Johns, but Dave Johns was a big bodybuilder, black guy that was a Mr. America competitor. And he would work out so casually he would get on the bench press and he would do like four reps. He'd put it down long before he was fatigued. And he would sit there for three, four minutes and look around. Then he maybe added some weight, maybe did another three, four, but put it down. Never asked for a spot. Never did a force reps. Never did breakdown sets. And he was massive. Yeah. And I thought to myself, I'm missing something here. This is, this is a... <laughs> Because I, you know, intuitively, we think the more burn, the more fatigue, the more pump. No, actually, well, some of us actually feel guilty if we train like Dave John's trained.
0: feel oh, yeah. Like, sure. We're not
1: working very hard.
0: Totally.
1: Right. But the truth is that is more conducive to muscle growth, resting longer. Right. You can, your viewers can actually Google this longer rest times. Three minutes of rest time has now proved more productive. Sure. Than one or two minutes rest time between sets because it allows you to do a next set with a heavier weight and allows you to do more sets, more volume. So, rest pause originally meant you would do a rep, a rep, and pause, and another rep and pause. Mm-hmm. So, the whole idea was to let the fatigue dissipate during the set, right? So, in other words, if you were doing leg extension, and you did one rep, and then you let the weights touch, and you waited for like 10 seconds before doing another rep. You could do more reps with a heavier weight than if you tried to sure. do them continuous tension, right? So the question is, which one builds muscle more? The second one.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's a lot of different ways people define rest, pause. Um, Dante Trudell, if you're familiar with him, DC yeah. Training, you know, and, and that was one where I always just called it three sets. It's it, it secondly one set, but, like, he talked about oh, 15 to 20 breaths, And if you've got a big guy, 15 to 20 breaths could be 40 to 60 seconds. So in my mind, you're doing three sets with short rest period of time, but it's all, you know, who cares what, you know, what the terminology is. Um, But that was actually one of the reasons that I really questioned the whole volume load aspect. And and I think number of hard sets makes more sense because if you look at some of these studies where they do uh, traditional sets and they compare it to a drop set or traditional sets and they compare it to rest pause if you are inevitably going to get a lower volume load with a rest pause, as you said, it could even compromise volume. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet a lot of these studies show the same hypertrophy. And so I I think that could be because you're still doing the same number of hard sets or even the same number of hard reps. Now, again, I'm not saying every study shows that. Um, There was a recent one that actually compared drop sets and uh, rest pause with traditional. And it it was very similar. Actually, rest I don't know if you saw the study. I don't remember the author's name. Rest pause actually came out slightly ahead, um, but you could argue that they went a little closer to failure. Which again, you could argue if that even matters. <laughs> um, and, well, and it was only yeah, one study. Yeah, you're
1: exactly right. You know, we're sort of splitting hairs here because it is wrong to say that fatigue is is the is the culprit. Fatigue does make muscle grow, mm-hmm. and also heavy weight, low reps makes muscle grow. So you can use a rest pause formula and get growth. It's not like you're not going to get growth sure the question is which one maybe works better for you given your somatotype maybe you have the type of body that responds better to heavyweight low reps and maybe you have the type of body that maybe you have more you know slow twitch muscle fiber and you respond better to burn 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 but they both produce growth what i what i tell people is you know a train the way you enjoy better Mm -hmm. right because it's gonna it's gonna result in more compliance Right. You're going to less likely to miss workouts. You'll be more consistent, but conduct your own studies, do your own experiments. But when you do your experiments, try to do them as purely as you can. Don't mix your, your stimulus. Then yep. you don't know what worked, you know? So, so tell yourself, okay, I'm going to do fewer sets, higher reps, lighter weight to failure for a month. Then for the next month, I'm going to do this other thing that literally avoids fatigue, avoids failure. Now, the problem is you say, okay, so then you measure it. How do you measure it, right? How do you, you can do use a tape measure, but whatever comes second is automatically going to grow less than what came first, right? Because you grow more in the beginning and less later, right? Sure. The less room you have to grow. <laughs> so it's hard to measure, but yeah. but I think most of us can have a sense of how we feel, whether that muscle feels bigger or stronger with one kind of training and the other kind of, and I can tell you, I have gravitated more toward, I, I don't want to call it rest pause because you have this definition and that, that now you've used, mm-hmm. but I avoid fatigue more now than I did in my younger years. And maybe it's because I'm 61, okay. <laughs> um, but I really like um, doing multiple sets of low reps with sufficient rest in between. I really like that kind of training.
0: So are you using that you're former rest pause definition like you'll do a wrap and wait or are you just doing like a couple of reps, you'll wait a couple of minutes like how does that look like for you
1: so like let's just say i'm doing triceps i'll do the first set of 30 reps, you know just to get things warmed up then i'll do 20 then i'll do 15 then we'll do 10 8 6 6 6 or 6 4 4 4 or mm-hmm. something like that so the first sets are just kind of like getting me there yeah but the real meat i think the just the, the good stuff i think comes when i get below eight reps
0: and then how close are you at this point in your training career to failure
1: uh i i would well i don't let's put it this way i don't take it to the point where i can't finish the rep sure the last rep i think i can successfully complete the one i think comes before the one i would fail at yeah is where okay. i stop.
0: Okay. So basically what they would call zero R A R zero reps and reserve. So yeah. you're still pushing quite hard then. Got it. But that
1: isn't in the beginning. That is on the you know, if I'm doing let's say ten sets.
0: Right. It Just starts
1: right around the eighth, ninth, tenth set.
0: Okay. Got gotcha. it. With
1: sufficient rest in between.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Um, and I guess the last thing I'd want to wrap up on is, you know, one thing that I'll talk about just as a general concept, this doesn't apply to everything, but, you know, people will maybe talk about different routines and, you know, different methods. And certainly there are worse routines. But my general thoughts are, you know, not that I'm so hung up on like a, a genetic limit for everybody, but more that, look, even if you have, maybe there's an A plus routine out there for you, even if you have an A minus or a B plus routine maybe you'll still get to your peak but now it's going to take you 12 years instead of nine years just as an example right but you're still going to get there as long as you're consistent eating right all these things do you think that when it comes to proper exercise selection if you've got somebody who came to you they've been lifting for 10 years eating right everything else was right but they've just been doing traditional exercises they come to you for a year and they implement your exercises do you think at that point you're going to see, I know it's very hard to quantify, there's a lot of factors involved, but do you think you're really, in your experience, going to see some big changes or is it like, well, at 10 years, you're probably still already seeing most of it and maybe you're just going to get some final touches on?
1: No, actually, it's already happening. It's already happening. I, you know, you might want to join our, we have a group page and there are people, I could send you, you know, emails where people sure. have said to me, I've been training for 30 years. And I thought I'd maxed out, and I I started hating working out because everything was hurting. My joints were hurting. Mm. I found your stuff, and all of a sudden, I'm enjoying the workouts. I'm growing for the first time. There's one guy named Renzo Algieri, uh, who's about 60 years old. And, in fact, we competed together in the NABBA World Championship in Ireland a number of years ago. Um, And there's another guy named Tor. He's in Norway, Tor. I can't think of his last name. He now is starting to compete again. He hasn't competed for 10 years because he says, I'm getting growth I didn't think I could get at my age. So, uh, look, the bottom line is if, 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 you, if you've been training for 10, 20, 30 years um, and, and, and you put some wear and tear in your body using traditional exercise, I can guarantee you that. Sure. Um, and the chances of you being able to train as hard as you used to train before you put that wear and tear in your body causes you to train less hard or not at all. If you thought that was the only way to train, you might not be training at all anymore. You thought, well, I can't work out anymore. Oh, guess what? The joint doesn't actually move that way. The joint actually moves this way. Oh, now that I can do. Mm -hmm. Oh, now that doesn't hurt. Oh, guess what? I can actually go heavy on an exercise if the joint is in that angle, but I can't if if the joint... People ask me all the time, do you still train heavy? I go, yeah. In my mind, I'm thinking heavy as in a weight that challenges that muscle to four or six reps, right? They're thinking, do you, do you still bench press, you know, 400 pounds Right. or over? I never train that way.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. They go, well, I can't train heavy anymore because, well, that's because you're doing exercises that really just beat up your body. That's why.
0: For sure. For sure. Well, Doug, thank you very much for taking the time, indulging all my questions. I, I, think I love it.
1: Probably- I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Look, Yours, your questions and many, many others are the ones that people need to have answered. And I can't get to everybody unless that question question is publicly asked of me. So thank you for asking them.
0: Sure. So I know you have the book. Uh, you mentioned, a, I think it's a Facebook group. Is that right?
1: The Facebook group is Smart Training 365 and also Doug Brignoli and Smart Training 365 website. If you go there, you'll see a bunch of our videos. Uh, and the YouTube Smart Training 365 also has a lot of videos. We try to put out one every week.
0: Awesome. So everybody listening, I will have links to all that down below. And again, as well as the Operation Smile link. So thank you again, Doug.
1: Thank you. My pleasure. Bye-bye, guys.